Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and The Empire Strikes Back. The follow-up to George Lucas's Star Wars has gained a legacy as a darker, richer chapter from a bygone era when melodramatic twists and sequels that revised their predecessors were appreciated. If Star Wars was the favorite film of every doe-eyed 80s kid, Empire was the favorite of every 80s moody older brother. To really understand Empire, little brother, one must first understand the Wampa. After re-watching the first Star Wars, let us now break down the finer details in Empire to explain how, despite reviews at the time so mixed that George Lucas apologized for it, this film tops so many best of lists. Even though it came out in 1980, I feel like I gotta say it for this movie. Spoiler warning for the movie that defined everything about spoiler culture. Okay, here we go. The opening crawl begins with episode five. This blew everyone's minds in 1980 because three years earlier, the first Star Wars had no episode number at the top of the crawl. In 1981, the first Star Wars was re-released in theaters and Lucas added episode four, A New Hope, to the top of that crawl. Lucas did this after working with Empire's original screenwriter, science fiction writer Lee Brackett, whose writings and discussions with Lucas eventually led to him filling in a detailed backstory for Darth Vader's past as Anakin Skywalker, his relationship with Obi-Wan, and the fall of the Jedi, which of course would later lead to the prequel. So, as Lucas revised the script with Larry Kasdan, he decided the story that we've seen so far is en medias res, all part of a deeper history than we realized. And this opening sentence in Empire's Crawl is a firm declaration that this next chapter will not be the fantasy caper like the first. It's a darker, moodier examination of the villain who only got 12 minutes of screen time in the first Star Wars, Darth Vader, the most active and consequential character in this installment. The opening planet shows how this story will be an elemental inverse of its predecessor, switching from the scorching deserts of Tatooine to the frozen tundras of Hoth, shot on the glaciers of Norway. And rather than opening with the lovable droids R2-D2 and C-3PO, this time we open on a droid who would probably go to droid hell if there is one, the evil Imperial probe droid. Luke Skywalker rides a Tauntaun, a two-legged mount inspired by the creature ridden by the Necron 99 from the 1977 animated film Wizards. Originally, Tauntauns were conceived of as lizards, but were redesigned to approximate bighorn sheep, though still having some reptilian qualities. Luke gets blindsided by a Wampa based on the Yeti of folklore and real life. Early versions of the Wampa established them with supernatural powers capable of swimming through the Hoth snow like a fish, with some others captured inside the rebel base. One scene deleted from the evac sequence would have shown a room in the base where captured Wampa are kept. As seen in a brief shot in the theatrical trailer, 3PO would have ripped off the danger sign from the door, tricking some stormtroopers into going in there. Now, it was believed that this Wampa attack was written to explain the scars on Mark Hamill's face from a car accident in 1977, but really Hamill's scars had mostly healed by the time Empire started production. The scars later on his face were created by makeup. Another misconception is the Wampa itself. The one who attacks Luke is not the one in the cave. There are male and female Wampa. And actually the one that we see in the cave in the wider angle eating was not in the original version of the film. It was added in the 97 special edition played by ILM staffer Harold Weed on a cave set that was built with a roof only four and a half feet tall to make him seem like he was nine or 10 feet tall. The original theatrical cut just showed the Wampa close-up, it looked a bit campy. Luke hangs upside down here. He actually finds himself upside down three times this movie. In the cave in Act 1, on Dagobah in Act 2, and hanging from Cloud City in Act 3. Each time, he's forced to use the Force to get out of it, and it reflects the upturned perspective Luke leaves this movie with, along with, like the Wampa here, one limb fewer. While all this is going on, Han Solo, Chewbacca, and Leia are back on the Rebel base. Han is fearing the bounty on his head and he wants to bounce. I thought you had decided to stay. Well, the bounty hunter we ran into when Ord Mandel changed my mind. In 1983, there was a radio drama called Rebel Mission 2 Ord Mantel, in which Luke and Han seek a new base, but really just to throw off the Empire scent. Han, we need you. We need? Yes. Well, what about you need? I need. I don't know what you're talking about. 
Probably George. George Lucas commissioned director Irvin Kirshner to direct this film, and one of Kirshner's greatest contributions to the Star Wars series was his focus on the human drama between Han, Leia, and the other characters. Star Wars was extremely plot-driven, basically a beat-for-beat -beat adaptation of Joseph Campbell's monomyth, the story of King Arthur set in space. Well, again, everywhere is space, but in a galaxy far, far away. Empire, by comparison, is not really that plot-dependent. It's more of a study of character and relationship dynamics. While the plot often treads water on Dagobah or clunks around on the Falcon, our focus is pulled instead to the fiery passion between Han and Leia, the trusting friendship between Luke and Han, the creepy paternalistic drive of Darth Vader. When the rebels close the doors on Han and Luke, Chewie roars in agony. You feel his pain. And later when Luke suits up and says bye to Han, he almost says something. But instead, he just smiles at his friend. The last time they'll see each other before Han gets frozen. A moment that feels so tragic because in the first act, Han saves Luke from getting frozen, but Luke is not able to save Han from getting frozen. See, Kirshner turns the character archetypes from the first film into living, breathing, feeling humans. And without this addition, the Star Wars franchise would not inspire the deep emotional connection among fans that leads us to cosplay and decades later tear up at things like Chewie. <laughs> Among the Rebels, Major Bren Durlin is actually a cameo by John Ratzenberger, Cheers, and all the Pixar movies. Later, there will be another cameo, the Rebel crossing with the notepad is artist Ralph McQuarrie, who conceived so much of the look of the original trilogy in his artwork, just still being used in the new films. Han rescues Luke by cutting open his tauntaun and covering Luke in its entrails. When Leonardo DiCaprio did this with a horse in The Revenant, many pointed out the similarity, but in both cases it's just like an old survival technique. Echo base? This is Rogue Two. I found them. Repeat, I found them. After the red and gold squadrons of the previous film, this squadron is labeled Rogue. Later, the movie Rogue One established the origin of this squadron, the rebels who went rogue from Yavin 4 to infiltrate Scarif for the Death Star plans. Luke recovers in a Bacta healing tank and then gets a big wet one from his sister. Well, I guess you don't know everything about women yet. Mm. Guess we didn't. General Raken alerts them to the probe droid ordering. Ten roads, ten and eleven to station three eight. The number is one one three eight. In that order, it's another nod to George Lucas's previous film, THX one one three eight. Moving on to the Imperial fleet, scored to the famous Imperial March, which John Williams added to his Star Wars suite, starting with this film. He took inspiration from Gustav Holst's The Planet's Mars Bringer of War. The scale of this fleet is conveyed cleverly with the use of shadows that bleed down the surface of the Star Destroyer, which already seems massive to us based on how it entered the frame with all the TIE fighters buzzing around it. But now this huge thing is being engulfed in the shadow of something even huger, Vader's new Star Destroyer in this film, the Executor. And finally, looming largest over all of these things, Vader's helmet itself. Now in Rogue One, Gareth Edwards would similarly use bleeding shadows to suggest the scale of an impossibly large object. In that case, it was a Star Destroyer compared to the immense Death Star. The Empire invades Hoth with all-terrain armored transports, AT-ATs, or AT-ATs. A spokesman for George Lucas at one point indicated the correct version is AT-AT, but to a lot of fans like us, it was kind of a GIF versus JIF thing. At some point, if enough people say something some way, that's kind of how languages get formed, folks. Lucasfilm's Dave Filoni confirmed that there is no one way to pronounce anything here, that only a Sith deals in absolutes. I say you can say AT-AT, you can say AT-AT, oh, and you can say Walker. 
I'm for all three. That's canon, because in the show, I have Imperials say walkers, I have them say AT-AT, and I have them say AT-AT. The AT-ATs or AT-ATs were inspired by the walking tripods of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and their legs were based on the gantry cranes and shipping ports. For their movement, stop-motion animators study the walking patterns of elephants, and presumably also study when elephants fall down. Luke's gunner is named Dak, named after film editor Dwayne Dunham's dog, Dak, but spelled differently, and Dennis Lawson returns as Wedge Antilles, who wasn't originally scripted to appear, but enough fan interest led to Lucas including him. Lawson actually returns again to the series as Wedge in Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. So they bring down one of the walkers with tow cables, a tactic that Peter Parker would later suggest to bring down the giant Scott Lang in Captain America Civil War. Hey guys, you ever seen that really old movie? Uh, Empire Strikes Back? You know that part? Where they're on the snow planet? calls it a snow planet, a walking thing. Yeah, like a kid who has a Lobot figurine wouldn't know the name Hoth or wouldn't have an opinion about AT-ATs versus AT-AT. Anyway, the Rebels evacuate and Han takes evasive maneuvers. The special effects team created a new model of the Falcon for this movie, which allowed them to manipulate it around for barrel rolls and flips that it wasn't able to do in the first film. Han takes it through an asteroid field. Apparently, some of these asteroids are a potato and one of the VFX people's shoes. At one point, a TIE fighter explodes on an asteroid and you can see the pilot flipping away into space. Vader blows off steam in his meditation chamber gives us a super brief but fascinating glimpse at his scarred head. This shot inspired so much mystery among the Star Wars fans that a young Gareth Edwards would see this in a movie and then later, when he made Rogue One, would tease a similar glimpse of the back of Vader's head as his back to tank water lowered. This chamber is said to be a hyperbaric chamber that charges the interior air to greater than one atmospheric pressure, which would allow Vader to remove his helmet and breathe normally. However, in the movie, you can see Vader has an additional breathing mask in that chamber. With Vader taking command of the Imperial Navy, we see how his leadership is actually pretty stubborn and reckless. He forced like everyone, and he leads the Star Destroyers through the asteroid field, despite it tearing up most of their ships. I actually love how one of the captains, as he hollow chats with them, gets his bridge destroyed in the middle of the conference. Vader only moves out of the field to get a signal to talk to his boss, the Emperor. This being the first glimpse we get of him. There is a great disturbance in the Force. Actually, this is the later edition in which George Lucas added Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor, probably around the time he was shooting Revenge of the Sith. Originally, the Emperor was played by the hooded actress Marjorie Eaton, with superimposed chimpanzee eyes over her face and voiced by the actor Clive Revel. There is a great disturbance in the Force. When the scene was changed, the dialogue was also expanded so that the Emperor describes Luke as the rebel that destroyed the Death Star, and Darth Vader questions the possibility of Luke being the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. It ends up being kind of redundant and self-contradictory to earlier in the film, but they just really want to underline all of this. Boba Fett also makes his debut here, even though he was added to another special edition scene in 97. Originally, this is the first time we see him. He wears the distinctive armor of the people of Mandalore, which has shown up throughout the films and TV series, and you'll notice that he has a string of hair around his armor that is Wookiee scalps that he wears as a trophy, which later gives Chewbacca yet another reason to hate this guy. Originally, Boba Fett was voiced by actor Jason Wingreen, but Lucas dubbed over all of his dialogue with prequel Jango Fett actor Tamara Morrison, who is now the voice of Boba Fett in all the clone troopers and pretty much everything Lucasfilm does. Despite Boba Fett's letdown demise and Return of the Jedi, Empire establishes reputation as an amoral badass man of few words who never reveals his face. Lucas described him as the man with no name from the Sergio Leone westerns. The other bounty hunters who show up include Bosk, IG-88, and the one in white is Dengar, who was once a fierce rival of Han Solo's, but was badly beaten and now wants revenge. Luke and R2 head to the swamp planet of Dagobah, 
or to nearly get swallowed by a swamp creature wasn't given a name at the time until a 93 video game that called it a Hagobad, an anagram of Dagobah. When Yoda appears, Luke and the audience first just see him as a comical nuisance. As a student of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, George Lucas mentioned Yoda came from the odd little side characters that the hero ends up running into along the path, kind of like the munchkins of the Wizard of Oz. But the name Yoda was based on the Sanskrit term Yodha, translating to warrior, suggesting his humble might. He speaks in inverted sentences, object, subject, verb, order. Looking, found someone you have, I would say. A structure used by very few languages in our world, with the exception of a few based in the Amazon River Basin. In Empire, Return of the Jedi, and The Phantom Menace, Yoda was voiced and puppeted by Frank Oz and a team of puppeteers, with the whole set in this movie raised five feet so that they could operate him from underneath. Makeup artist Stuart Freeborn based his design for Yoda's face on his own face combined with Albert Einstein's to imbue the character with an inherent wisdom. Of all the characters in the Star Wars universe, Yoda is one of the few whose species and origin has been deliberately left a mystery. When every extra in these movies has a name and an action figure, that tells you something about his sacred status. We know only that they age very slowly, Yoda's nearly 900 years old here, and at one point a female of his race, Yaddle, sat on the Jedi Council. And if you're up to date on more current Star Wars stuff without spoiling anything, it sounds like we might start to learn more about him. Now of course, Yoda's annoying behavior is really just an act designed to test Luke's patience, just to see how quick he is to anger. I cannot teach him. The boy has no patience much anger in him. Yoda's philosophy was inspired by Stoicism, a Greek school of thought that preached emotional control and that virtue is based on knowledge. I'm not afraid. You will be. Yoda's words foreshadow the darkness to come and reflect the skepticism of Luke's bravery, but really the line underscores Empire's purpose as a film, to take a franchise about bravery and brash heroism and burden it with emotional stakes so that we now have a reason to fear the darkness. This fear manifests later when Yoda sends Luke into the cave. What's in there? Only what you take with you. Again, some wise insight from the master. In the face of darkness, the real source of fear is our own insecurities. In Luke's case, it's Darth Vader, but underneath that mask is Luke's own face, foreshadowing his connection with Vader and Luke's inner fear of being tempted to the dark side. In the three films of this original trilogy, Luke's wardrobe grows increasingly darker film to film. White in A New Hope, Grey in Empire, and Black in Return of the Jedi, indicating his journey deeper and deeper into the depths of the dark side to confront his father and bring him back from those depths. Unable to balance his competing desires to continue his Jedi training and maintain his connection to his friends, Luke ignores the warnings of Yoda and the ghost of Obi-Wan and leaves. That boy is our last hope. No. There is another. Ah, now that line was a real cryptic tease at the time, left over from Lee Brackett's early draft of the screenplay, which actually would have included the ghost of Luke's father, Anakin, revealing that Luke had a sister named Nella Skywalker. But in Lucas's and Kasdan's revision, Anakin's ghost was replaced with Yoda in the ghost of Obi-Wan, and it was in this draft when Vader was revealed to be Luke's father. In Return of the Jedi, Lucas answered that mystery by revealing Leia as Luke's sister. While Luke is on Dagobah, Han, Leia, Chewie, and 3PO hide in an asteroid, unknowingly in the bowels of an Exogorth space slug. There's a moment when 3PO communes with the Falcon's computer. Sir, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. This line would later go on to inspire a subplot in Solo, in which the Falcon's computer came from Lando's droid LV-37, which got damaged in a shootout on Kessel, so they interfaced her with the Falcon, giving the ship its unique navigation system that allowed it to run the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Han and Leia's flirty bickering finally boils over. Afraid? You're trembling. I'm not trembling. You like me because I'm a scoundrel. 
Um, uh, uh, steamy though this may be, the passion between Han and Leia is just that, passion. Han is cornering her in a real dirty part of the Falcon. He's spitting game about being a scoundrel. Really the only thing classing up this moment is John Williams' famous love theme. I don't believe that Lucas, Kasdan, or Kirshner ever intended on Han and Leia's love lasting, but their time together served a greater purpose than their own happiness to inspire the rebellion and later to inspire the resistance. After escaping the Minox and the Exogorth and fooling the Imperial officers by hiding the Falcon on a Star Destroyer, they make their way to Cloud City on Bespin, where they are greeted by Lando Calrissian. Billy Dee Williams had previously auditioned for the role of Han Solo when Lucas had conceived of the role as a black man. Lando's right-hand man is Lobot, who actually has a very interesting backstory in Star Wars lore. Having joined Lando on a job to take what ended up being the Emperor's personal yacht, leading Lobot to having to sacrifice his personality via his implant, and after the events of Return of the Jedi, Lando and Lobot fight to liberate Cloud City. Cloud City was originally a scrapped concept from the original Star Wars, where it would have hovered over the remnants of Alderaan and served as a setting for Obi-Wan's duel with Vader, but the whole concept was moved to Empire, and for the special edition, Lucas actually refinished most of the city exteriors that we see. 3PO gets attacked and broken up into parts. Chewie finds him heading into a scrap furnace run by a bunch of Ugnaughts. Beside the furnace is an IG-86 Sentinel droid, similar to the model that IG-88 is, and IG-11 from The Mandalorian. There's also an Ugnaught character in The Mandalorian. They realize that Lando has sold them out to Vader. Vader tortures Han, and he hands him off to Boba Fett to be returned to Jabba the Hutt, leading to Han being frozen in carbonite. I love you. I know. In the original script, Han was supposed to say, just remember that, Leia, because I'll be back. But reportedly it wasn't clear if Harrison Ford was going to return for a third film, so Kirshner had Ford ad-lib a line. The final result is also a way truer response from a scoundrel like Han. Again, it's not a romance built to last, so instead of reciprocating, Han takes the opportunity to win their feud from earlier. You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me? Yes, you're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. No, that's not it. Come on. Uh-huh. Come on. You're imagining things. Am I? Then why are you following me? Fredo's gonna leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? When Luke arrives, the Imperial escort who uses Leia as a human shield is actually Jeremy Bullock, the actor who physically played Boba Fett. They struggle to escape. And another example of how Empire is way darker than the other two of the original trilogy, both of those end in military victory. This one, they escape by the skin of their teeth. And the final dramatic confrontation is also super intimate and personal. It's just a duel between Luke and Vader, echoing the duel between Vader and Obi-Wan, which arrived at the midpoint of that movie. Note the two dominant colors here, red and blue. Red platform against the blue background, reflecting Vader's red lightsaber against Luke's blue lightsaber. On the whole, Empire is a very blue movie with all the scenes on Hoth and Dagobah hinted in moody blue overtones. The arrival of so much red here reflects the way Vader's hellfire has burnt its way into Luke's world. Earlier on Dagobah, Luke felt a momentary deja vu and a chill. Something familiar about this place. In the cave, he confronted Vader in a tunnel with sloped archways, which are natural doppelgangers of the mechanical trap he now finds himself in with the real Vader. While Luke defeated Vader easily in the cave, Yoda described that moment as a failure. Remember your failure at the cave. That's because the dark side tricked Luke into thinking he could take Vader. And now Luke is completely outmatched against a far more experienced force practitioner. Whereas Luke struggled to lift a few stones, Vader now barrages him with crate after crate. Whereas Luke clutches to his lightsaber for dear life with both hands, Vader confidently strikes against his old blade with just one hand. And it's not until the duel ends that Vader stops playing around, he severs Luke's hand and hits him with the truth. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, 
I am your father. Now, Vader is actually similar to the German Vater, which means father, and we know the Empire is space Nazis, so there you go. This reveal was so kept under secrecy that Mark Hamill was only told shortly before shooting the scene, and David Prowse, the actor who physically played Vader, was actually told to say the line, Obi-Wan killed your father. Nowadays, this kind of twist provokes skepticism, but in the days of Empire, this twist worked, A, because it hadn't been done so many times, and B, because it turns the villain from a masked stranger into, well, still a masked stranger, but one whose blood runs through our veins, who knows us in a way that we don't know ourselves. It's terrifying. It's like discovering a murderer who broke into your house, used to sleep in your bedroom. You're just wondering, did you know that before you got in? What's in this for you, you psycho? I sadly grew up knowing the truth about Darth Vader before seeing any Star Wars film. Wow, what an ending. Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah. And I think many in our generation have forgotten that sensation of shock and disgust and pathos that this revelation brings. It's actually kind of amazing to see YouTube videos of parents showing their kids' empire for the first time. I am your father. Yeah, that is the feeling in which this moment should live on for each of us. Because despite the grace notes that close out Empire, Luke getting rescued, Luke and Leia gazing out of the galaxy, Empire leaves us with a nagging unease that this world is dark, hiding truths about ourselves that we are not ready to hear. One of the final shots of Luke shows him receiving a new mechanical hand. Like his father, shown in Act 1 in a glimpse of scarred flesh fused with machine, Luke is one step closer in a similar transformation to an augmented amputee just like his father, a Skywalker scarred and scared. Be sure to check out my analysis of the first Star Wars and keep an eye out for my breakdown of Return of the Jedi. We're gonna keep this train going. Comment down below with what you love about this film. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss and follow new rock stars and subscribe to this channel on YouTube and subscribe to our Wookiee Leaks podcast feed for early audio versions of this stuff. Thank you for joining me. And I'm just always wondering, what, what was Luke gonna say to Han? <laughs>